Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. You are listening to Showing Up. I'm your host, Jerry Sander. We're broadcasting from the Black Dirt region of the Hudson Valley in New York. Today's beautiful May day. The squirrels are out running around. The fox is out back trying to catch the squirrels. Has done that with a few of them already, I believe. It's a rapidly diminishing squirrel population. The woodpeckers are out there woodpecking. Chipmunks are chipmunking. And next month, the raspberry bushes will bloom. We have a very special show today. I've got two guests who've written about the future. We're going to consider the topic of what if the future has just happened. My book, Convergence, will be one of the three discussed. So there's a confession. I am one of the three authors. The other two authors are are Katie Delahanty, who's recently published a book called Keystone, and educator author Erica Kane, whose novel is still in progress, called Sella and the Blood Barons. So last Friday night was supposed to be the reading that I was going to have at the local library. I was really looking forward to it. This is the kind of thing that you do when you write and publish a book and you want to get the word out there and you want to get some discussion going. And I really wanted to get some discussion going about the ideas in my book. And I had all sorts of campaigns planned to promote this book starting at the end of February. And I actually printed up these mysterious looking business cards that would kind of almost promote some conspiracy theory thinking and uh, speculation about who is behind what and and get people interested enough to click on my website and then uh, read some versions of alternative history and buy the book. I cooked up a good ad for the book and then the world became engulfed in pandemic crisis, which was not fiction, but real, with conspiracy theories all over the place. And suddenly the world was all about, can you get food into your house? Do you need to disinfect the food do you have in your house? Can you find what you need to live? And can we all hunker down in some kind of safety eat macaroni and cheese and watch old reruns of Friends or something like that, The Office. It seemed like the worst possible time to promote a book about the thought of things getting bad in the near future. Let's talk about that for a second. But maybe a good place to start is the uh, advertisement I put together for my book. So here it is. By the year 2024, the United States is gone. It's merged with the world's largest search engine company. Only old people remember what came before the triumvirate. All citizens are biometrically linked to the hive through implants in the back of their necks. The hive never sleeps. There's a new pledge. I pledge assistance to the convergence of the technological present. And to the triumvirate, which brings peace to all, jobs for all who want them, and security from religious attack, non-excluded. 
all hail the triumvirate, except for a few. Convergence by Jerry Sander, available on Amazon in ebook and paperback. Read it while you still can. Okay, that was a little bit of monster chiller theater stuff there. So, as they say the joke about actors, or speaking with an actor, enough about me, how do you feel about me? I know, it's a conceit to start with my own book. We're going to move on to the two other authors in a moment. But I just want to say this, I didn't choose to write a band about a pandemic, and I didn't think to write about a pandemic. But the world that I wrote about had a trust of technology. It was a near future where people turned to their retinal implants to trust. People turned to companies like Zoom and Google and Amazon to fulfill their needs, not whitehouse.gov. The uh, level of involvement of the government in the future is very small as compared to the technological triumvirate that rules our lives. And the distancing that takes place, the redefinition of intimacy, what it means to be in intimate connection with someone else via a distance or a screen, or even a screen being your retina. This is very much what I was writing about and writing about a revolution in the future against this kind of stuff. I hope you will buy my book and consider the ideas expressed in there. Now it's time to look at some other author ideas. I had the privilege of speaking with Katie Delahanty last week from Los Angeles about her book, Keystone, and she'll explain what it's about. So it's basically set, it's in the near future. I don't know exactly how far in the future, but um, I'm thinking 2050-ish, maybe. Um, I would kind of leave it vague. Um, and basically, the we have a caste system where the corporates are at the top of the caste and the people who don't rank on social media or are not allowed to rank are the unrankables at the bottom. So you have corporates, influencers, laborers, makers, all in between. And then there's the disconnects who are the people who choose not to rank. Um, and when I'm speaking of ranking, I'm talking about there's a social stock exchange where at the age of 16, the influencers basically are publicly traded by the corporations as like they're you know ruled by the brands and um, kind of live and die by their numbers and their followers and their popularity. Um, so it's set in that that world that kind of that's kind of like the the basis of the world. But then um, basically the main character debuts on the social stock exchange and just you know hates life as an influencer and fakes her death to join a secret society of disconnects that are actually stealing analog history um, before the corporations can alter the past. So how much of this? is a flight of whimsy and how much of this is stuff that you have seen and feel is actually taking place around you? You know, when I started, I, you know, I didn't set out to write like a dystopian speculative fiction sort of thing. Um, I wanted to write a heist and I, um, I wanted to write something about a school for thieves stealing analog history. And then I'm thinking like, why are they stealing analog history? Like what, what, how can, what's the Robin hood in that? How can we root for them? What are the bigger forces mm -hmm. at work? I started to do a lot of research um, into the future 
into like analog and versus digital. And I really just knew nothing at all about. I love that research into the future. Yeah. So you started doing research into the future. I love that. But I read, like, I, I, I listened to a lot of audiobooks. I listened to The Inevitable. I listened to Homo Deus. I listened, I read a ton of Wired Magazine. I, you know, just really mm-hmm. immersed myself in what the possibilities were and kind of started building things from there. And then after having done all that research, um, I started to really see it happening in the world. You know, Could you I, say more? Say more about that. Well, I, I'm thinking of that old advice that they constantly give writers to write what you know, right? What, you know what? What do you know based on what you're seeing in the world right now? Well, just I mean, after I wrote it, then I started seeing articles that you know, and just even with like China and the facial recognition cameras and people shielding their faces with umbrellas, which you know, umbrellas are a big theme in the book, and the cover has an umbrella on it, and that's. You know, they have one of the the gadgets is an umbrella that scrambles code. So you can it's like an invisibility umbrella, basically. So you can't be tracked. You can be off the grid. Um, And just those images of of China with the umbrellas, you know, happened long after I wrote the book. But it just was like, oh, my gosh, like, it's so keystone. It's happening. Um, And even with like everything that's going on right now with people wearing masks. I saw an article that said facial recognition uh, technology can actually read through the masks. And that's, you know, kind of the, the fashion of the book is the CV dazzle makeup and the makeup to describe, disguise your face from facial recognition and, and things like that. Um, wow. But yeah, I definitely didn't write what I, I knew other than my, my day job is I work for a sleepwear company and in the process of writing this book, I, they asked me to take over all of the social media. And so I started working with influencers and I had to grow their Instagram account. And I just started to see like how fake it all was and just all the tricks people use to make it seem like they have all this influence. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that played into it a lot too. In your book, um, one of your characters mentions that she had been shielded from actual social situation with kids her own age. Until what, age 16 or something? Yes. Yeah. And I I mean, it's something I think about a lot, just again, in that influencer world. And I'm a mom and just I look at the moms who are in the, you know, mom bloggers and their kids are just always at the forefront of of social media. And I think there was a mom who there was like a big backlash because she said for my son's birthday, like he never gets as many likes as anybody else. Could you just give him some likes today? And oh you just gosh. think about that kid, like, oh my, gosh. oh my gosh. And I've read some articles from teens who grew up now with their mom being a blogger and, you know, they're wearing t-shirts that say no photos, please. And like, no, I'm not your, you know, I've been the face of your brand before I had a say in that. And, you know, this is my identity and you can't take pictures of me anymore, mom. Sorry. Wow. Um, so, so we're at a point in our present moment where kids are not even allowed to go to school face to face and they're doing school via a computer screen. Right. Um, which... Yeah. Uh, how do you really, yeah, this kind of fits <laughs> in your theme pretty well, doesn't it? Yeah. No, every time, you know, when, you know, COVID happened and all of this, you know, I just feel like it's a big shift. It's pushing us more toward that future where, you know, first of all, there's, there's no work you know, people aren't working. It's almost like we need a universal based salary. It's um, getting us used to 
you know, remote working remotely or going to school remotely mm-hmm. or, and maybe we're all kind of realizing right now too, that, you know, the parts of life that we've been missing out on because we've been working so hard and in the race and, um, you know, oddly pushing us more toward being connected as a family, but, mm-hmm. but also disconnected. <laughs> yeah. And what does it mean to be connected You've got the disconnects in your book. Could you yeah. say who the disconnects really are? They're the people. So the influencers are on the social stock exchange and everybody kind of ranks on the social network. There's a life, there's life. Basically everybody has a live stream that's recording everything, every moment of their lives. And they, there's facial recognition cameras everywhere in your home and out, you know, in the world so that you can go live and turn your that feed that's recording your life live and broadcast it out to the networks and it gets edited and filtered to look like a movie. You know, there's an algorithm that does that for you. And so within with like a two second delay, you can be star the star of your own movie where you look, you know, perfect and it's edited and, you know, has background music or whatever. <laughs> um, and so the disconnects are the people who just shun all of that technology and don't want to be public and live off the grid. Um, well, I have some further thoughts, but is there a section of your book that you could read to give us a flavor of it? I, um, let's see, I kind of pulled just a, a couple of things that, sure. that kind of described um, like the disconnects, the explanation of the disconnects. Uh, we may live off the grid, but it's important we're aware of what's going on in the world. At Keystone, we're a special legion of disconnects. Our mission is to steal analog history to preserve the truth, the truth before corporations and the government can alter the past to benefit their personal futures. We're in danger of entering a digital dark age where the only information available is digital. Tape recordings, printed books, films, photographs, proof of history are decaying and becoming scarce. Digital information is easy to tamper with, and there are forces at work that want current society to reflect their version of the past. So, so let's see if I got this right. I mean, it, <laughs> this is intriguing to me as a therapist. Oh, because no. as, a thera- as a therapist, we're always talking about where does your feelings of self-esteem come from? Uh-huh. You're born, born with some innate love of yourself, but then it comes from, you know, your immediate family and then what others think of you would be uh-huh. an external form of kind of attributed self-esteem. In your novel, where do your characters get their self-esteem from? Well, that I, I think that even that comes up a lot is I think a lot of people, you know, define themselves by their work. And it's like, you know, I am a writer and that defines me or I am mm-hmm. a social media manager. You know, in my pre- before I started writing books, I was a fashion designer. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, if you don't have that, then how do you define yourself? And I think, you know, where does your self-esteem come from is, Mm -hmm. is, you know, and that's why I think where a lot of the unrankables are, it's like a robot took my job, but what do I, what am I now? Like, I just don't even have, I don't have a reason to get up every morning. I don't have, you know, I might as well just sit here and watch everybody else live their lives. So in this social stock exchange, you can rise to become an influencer and a maker and a super influencer based right. on the number of and people then, who like you. Yeah. Right, right. And then, then ideally you would become a corporation 
which <laughs> of course <laughs> is where you know who's actually doing the trading on this on the stock exchange. Well, I can't wait to see how it's going to end. I'm, <laughs> I think I'm about well, three quarters of the way through the book. It's a there's three books, so there's three. There's three. There's two more coming, but wow, I didn't know. So. <laughs> Do you have title? Do you have titles for them yet? The second one's called Incognito, and then the third one. I haven't written yet, so I don't know the title yet, but. Thank you so much for being my guest today. And I really look forward to whatever you have coming next. What a feat of imagination you've done. Oh, thank you. You're so, so nice to have me. Thank you. I think the thing I liked best about Katie's book was the sense of lonely emptiness uh, about us as a people who have lost any way to evaluate our self-worth other than what others tell us in the form of likes or celebrityhood. Oscar Wilde once suggested that a cynic was someone who knew the price of everything and the value of nothing. This book, Keystone, to me, raises the question of whether or not we're already there, whether we get all our self-esteem from some celebrity-based system. So we go from there to educator and author Erica Kane and friend Erica Kane, who's finishing her novel that is set in a future where water is a vanished resource. Let's start first by asking if in your mind you knew what year you were setting your book in. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's hard to pinpoint an exact future year for me because so much has to do with how natural disasters have impacted society. So we see kind of the start of natural disasters and it's just kind of blowing that up uh, on a massive scale. I guess if I had to pinpoint a date, it would be like in the 23rd or 24th century, I think. But we mm. see like wildfires and droughts in, in communities today. It's just maybe there would be a super volcano going off that would trigger. All, all right. What would that be? I, I'm unfamiliar with super volcanoes. Well, like, um, Yos is it Yosemite? That's a not Yosemite. Yellowstone. Yellowstone is a super volcano. Uh, basically, the, all of those calda calderas um, are building up tension. And if that volcano ever went off, then basically the entire world would be cloaked in smog and dust and cloud cover for years. It would maybe cause an ice age. Maybe like, I don't know exactly what it would do, but it would bring about the end of society as we know it. Whoa. Give us a description of what's going on in your world in, in the book you've written in that year. Yeah. Um, society is, it's basically reverted back to these small pockets of societies. Uh, they're living in villages underground in kind of a forced Bedouin lifestyle. They're trying to escape drones that are capturing people as hydro slaves because there's really no water left. It's uh, it's like this sand landscape. And uh, the sand is all red because it's basically the blood of everyone who has died in the years between this impact and the c community, the oasis taking in hydro slaves. Their bodies have basically just cracked and the blood has turned to sand. And all of the cities that originally 
uh, were here are covered in just mountains of dunes. Um, so these people are, there's like very low water table. They have lo really very little access to food and water. So they're living off of cricket flour, which is in my mind, the food of the future, if we can't sustain <laughs> cow, cattle, you know, and livestock, they take so much water up, but um, crickets don't apparently. Wait, so, do they make like cricket pizzas and stuff? <laughs> well, they wouldn't have like sauce because there's no tomatoes or anything. Oh. It would be like cricket cakes. Like, okay. Maybe cricket scones. <laughs> okay. Hey, it's your world. You get to yeah. invent it. <laughs> so was there... There was stuff that you were looking around and seeing happening right now in our real world that you were drawing on for inspiration with this. Was there not? Yeah. Um, like what? Yeah. Well, when I when I was hearing about rationed waters in certain areas like California um, and places in the Middle East and also Australia, you know, we have these pockets where there's this desert landscape that is very difficult to get resources. And then it's kind of blowing that up because with the direction that global warming might be taking, it, it's concerning. So this is like a combination of climate fiction and I don't know, it's mm -hmm. <laughs> my fears of what the world is heading towards. Mm. So, you know, I've been thinking about that advice that writers always hear to write about what you know, write what you know about. Were you writing about what you know about? Uh, well, I'm, I'm an English teacher, so I really read a lot of dystopian fiction mm -hmm. for my kids and for myself. And um, so I don't really know what the future will hold, but I am kind of immersed in this dystopian world and I, I mean, we see the flaws in our own society and how dystopian fiction, the authors magnify them as almost like a cautionary tale to the readers. So we're warning the world of like, if we continue down this path, this could happen. And it's not a pretty place. We don't want that to happen. So um, my interest in the climate also informs my writing. Mm -hmm. And so you just took it and ran with it like, what if? Yeah. And then what trying to if? find something that my kids would like, my students. So mm -hmm. trying to keep the pacing up. By the way, I did look up the definition of dystopia because I knew we'd be using the word. And the definition I found said an imagined state or society in which there is great suffering or injustice, typically one that is totalitarian or post-apocalyptic. Mm -hmm. So what do you think? kids at the grade level that you teach are interested in hearing about? Well, they see unrest in our own world, but when we see it in a dystopian fiction piece, it's almost like, well, it's not as bad here. <laughs> it could be worse. And there's always hope with the main character of overcoming something bad. So there's that that idea that we can take down a higher power. There is like, mm. if there is this totalitarian government in control, protesting or whatever we can do, we can bring about change. And that always seems to happen in dystopian fiction. It's very satisfying where we might not 
in the real world get that same sense of satisfaction that we're making a direct impact. It's like a little burst that like, oh, yeah, something here. Now, you actually have kids who cannot attend school in person right Mm -hmm. now Mm -hmm. for the first time ever, I think. Right. Right. And talk about not feeling empowered. Uh, What what do you think this is like for them? What's actually going on right now? Well, they are in this kind of twilight state of life where they're living the same day. It's almost like Groundhog's Day. (laughs) They wake Mm. up, they go on the computer, do their remote learning activities, maybe play some video games with friends, watch Netflix with family, um, with themselves, just like endless Netflix sessions. And then they do it all again the next day without really the same type of connections that they had when we had school. I think most of them are really missing school because of the social elements of it. And as much as they have these group chats going and they have so much contact with social media, it's not the same through the screen. And I've been hosting these Zoom calls and I just love seeing their faces. And even in the chats, like if there is a presentation going on, having kids do genius hour and they're when they're presenting the kids are in the chats encouraging each other writing reactions leaving little funny jokes and comments as as it goes on and and the humor is what what we miss so much Mm. Uh, the day-to-day in the classroom every day is different every day is exciting and and fun and they make me laugh in every single class and hopefully Mm. vice versa but we have this great connection in school and then once it's at home and through a screen and, you know, things are lost in translation and tech problems get in the way. And I have kids who are disconnected uh, emotionally from their peers who don't have the right type of phone. So they're not in the group chat or they don't have a, uh, they don't have a PC gaming platform, so they can't play the games with their friends. And they're so isolated right now. It's very sad. It's terrible. And they're missing so many of the milestones too. They're missing the eighth grade dance. And I mean, graduating seniors, they miss their prom. They miss their promotion, graduation, all of that. We just had a virtual DC trip for our kids. (laughs) How does that work? Well, they had the ability to go uh, through the itinerary that we would have actually had through Google Forms. And there are some great, great things about it where they can explore a monument using 360 pictures that have been taken and uploaded to Google. They can go on these digital tours. But what's missing is that bus ride, you know, the bus ride down where they're all with their friends, they're joking, they're playing, they go go back to the hotel afterwards. Mm -hmm. They're up until who knows how how late, Mm -hmm. Um, hanging out, they're away from home for the first time. You know, it's it's the experience that they're missing. So sure, they'll get the facts. They'll get to see these sites, which are amazing, and probably visit them in the future. But it's there's still something missing. They don't have that. I, yeah. I, so how do you react when you hear that Bill and Melinda Gates Educational Foundation want to get more involved in transforming schools? And when you hear Governor Cuomo talk about... Uh, uh, changing the old-fashioned way of a teacher in front of a classroom. Uh, does that make you nervous? The only thing that really makes me nervous about it is, I mean, I think about 
Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 and, and other iterations of his work where he has this the virtual teacher, the the screen, you know, in front of the kids. And that's obviously not a replacement for the time that we actually spend with them and pull them in during lunch and help them, you know, like encourage them in that face-to-face contact. It's it's a completely different setup. I, I don't feel like my job is at Jeopardy personally because I do so much with technology and I feel like this shift to remote learning has been very seamless for our, my class, but we we have to have school, you know, we have to have for kids, social lives. That's really what's, what's they're losing. Mm -hmm. Could you read a part of your book to us that you feel kind of paints the picture of the, the future you created? Great. Okay, so this is from the very beginning of the book. It's the first section, basically. (laughs) Chapter one. All right. All yours. Failure lingered in the stale air as I surfaced for the fifth time that day, empty-handed. The sun-warmed sands hissed in their descent from my scarf. I couldn't return to the village for the third time this week with nothing, not when the entire community is relying on dune divers like me. But trying to locate a new water supply seemed to be an impossible feat in this sector of the Blood Barrens. Even 100 meters deep into the sands, there was nothing. No water, not even the ruins of the buried cities. It had all been picked clean by the previous scavengers. Still, we we dove hoping to meet with resistance of the cool, dense sand, because our village wouldn't survive another annum without a new well. I slid another dyed stake out of my flora pack like an arrow from the quiver and drove it into the sand at the feet to mark the spot. With a leaden pit in my stomach, I looked west. The sand stretched endlessly. It was only from this vantage point that you could see the grid of markers, toothpicks against the slate-grace backdrop, The line where the dune met the sky wavered with heat, and a mound of sand began to sift and bulge like a giant anthill as Kiera clawed her way to the surface. Maybe she had better luck than me. She better have, because another no-yield run could mean the difference between the village's survival and our desiccated remains fertilizing the blood barons with a fresh supply of crimson sand. <laughs> and you need a whoa, like from your audience, right? From kids. Mm. What what age level do you feel this is most going to appeal to? I'd say that this is like early high school. Mm. Maybe some eighth graders would be interested in it, but I'm thinking like high school, probably. It's YA. Perfect. Because they're at that age where they're sensing like things are changing. And now when you look around, things are really changing. So this is something to grab onto and chew and talk about and think about because it is tied into some real reflection about how our world is changing, right? Yeah. Yeah, I sometimes I think about how this coronavirus is going to impact how we interact with people in the future and how we like go to stores and stuff like that. I sometimes think think about my my great aunts who when I was younger with like, it would be winter and they'd be like, Oh, do you have your scarf on? Or it's so cold out there. Make sure I'm like, I have my scarf on. Don't you see it? It's around my neck. No, on your head. You need a, you need a scarf on it. Like they would say things that I was like, what? And I feel like we're going to do that 
<laughs> to other to later generations we're going to be like oh you're having friends over this week and make sure you take their temperature at the door <laughs> or like did you lice all those groceries before you brought them in <laughs> i don't know i know i thought of that when i was thinking about the uh write about what you know stuff what are we all going to write about lysoling our groceries or something like that i mean there needs There's to be imagination be still mm-hmm. there's going to be like historical fiction of coronavirus it's going to be like covid era love stories and yeah <laughs> whole new genre yeah and and this is like a transformation like we're putting on our seatbelts and we don't know where this is going mm-hmm. we're not we're not getting answers about next fall next uh christmas you know we don't we don't know yeah yeah it's almost an, an exercise in what do you get like when you don't know how things are going but they're really changing I was hearing that some teachers are being encouraged to retire if they're 60. Um, Why? They, Just because of the health risks? They, yeah. And coming back to school in the fall or whenever huh. we do wind up coming back, that it could be dangerous for them. Wow. So it could transform the profession to a much younger one. Yeah. Which, you know, has its pluses and minuses. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, yeah. Any let me just see if I had any other question here. Yeah, what part of the future that you had imagined, thinking it was this real imaginative thing, are you sort of surprised to see, oh, whoa, that's coming true as I'm writing? Uh, well, in the book, there's kind of this under, not, there's so much misinformation that the main character experiences. And I see that daily in our lives there's like this assault on truth um that comes up in my story and another thing that that kind of scares me in our real world is that the rolling back of these epa restrictions for the sake of making production easier and cheaper and I, i recognize that the industry has been hit hard by this pandemic but i do worry about the environmental impact of ignoring pollution monitoring and reporting not reporting coal, oil, and power pollution um, from producers. How is that going to impact the environment? And this is happening right now. (laughs) This is not science fiction or dystopia. Well, I just saw yesterday an article saying that the writer, one of the writers for uh, Black Mirror, is that the, that's the name of the series, yeah, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, is retiring from writing dystopian stuff to write comedy instead because he feels we're living in dystopia right now. We are 100%. Yeah, yeah. this is yeah. a bizarre world we're living in right now. All right, so we've been talking with writer and educator Erica Kane about her novel in progress, Sella and the Blood Barons. I can't wait for it to be in print. And I know it's going to make a great impact, Erica. Well, thank you. And thanks for having me. What I truly appreciate about Erica's book is its unflinching look at what we're doing to the planet. Thank you, Erica. So I want to end our program about the future and the future that's already happening with a quote from Convergence. This is in honor of all the science fiction writers and creators and artists out there who are looking around and deciding that things could be much better and asking us to please make them better. 
This is from one of the last parts of Convergence. Life itself is the only thing worth protecting. There are no systems of life. Life is the system. All schools of thought are circular and empty. There are no ideologies that compel worship. Nurture and savor life. That's all. Enjoy its play, the pulsations, the sadness, the expression of itself, the reproduction of itself, and the transformative dying of itself. That's the only thing to do. Thank you for being with us today, and thank you to my guests, Katie Delahanty and Erica King. And now, we dance.